Hello there, and welcome back. It seems like things are getting a little crazy around the world right now, but I'm here to tell you that we're just keeping it business as usual here at the Price of Pain podcast. Try to do something unique with this episode and, and bring in a team physician for University of Florida who works with a number of the teams, and I met on a trip with Florida Volleyball uh, in the postseason last fall and immediately thought that she would be a great guest for the show. This is Dr. Sarah Krabitz, and she is trained in emergency medicine and actually still works in emergency medicine while completing her fellowship in sports medicine here at the University of Florida. She has a, a unique perspective in the respect that she is, a, like I said, a practicing physician in two different fields. And I was hoping to get a little bit more, honestly, uh, of you know maybe some stories and whatnot, but when you add HIPAA, which protects people's health information and, and personal information, and how tightly the athletic organizations protect the privacy of their athletes, I wasn't as able to get into some of those stories as much as I would like to, but she still provided a great perspective. And I think it's a welcome change from some of the research-oriented episodes that we've had. Um, I learned a, a number of new things, but one, I'm going to you know, give you a pop quiz and, and see if you can answer this by the end of the episode. Of all of the sports that Dr. Kravis works, can you guess which one has the most injuries, that has her working the most when she attends their competitive events? Aside from that, we're going to get on with the episode. So welcome back for another round. Let's get to it. Welcome to The Price of Pain. Brought to you by the Pain Research and Intervention Center of Excellence at the University of Florida. Let's join host Dr. Joshua Crow in conversations with scientists, healthcare providers, and industry professionals as we delve into the highly subjective experience of pain and the ongoing effort to reveal its influence on our everyday lives. Do you work with athletic trainers in preparation, or are you really... um... I guess my, my main question is, are you preventative, you know, on game day and in practices and whatnot, or are, are you really more uh, reactionary to, you know, anything bad that might happen? I would say it's a combination of both. I think the athletic training staff is really great because they know the players a lot better than any physician is going to know sure. the team. Um, so they're, you know, they're all day with the players every single practice, so they already know hey, this might come up during the game just to be aware, or hey, that he's been dealing with this all week, you know, so we are kind of on the lookout with that. But I would say it's a combination of both. That's got to be a lot of um, charts to, to manage, you know, if they're ongoing files for all of these athletes, because how many, how many sports do you work? I work all um, all the sports here. Yeah, <laughs> so it's a lot. But How many? All of them. <laughs> yes, all of them. But the Epic EMR is great, so right, you can right. look up and see your past notes and everything. That's cool. Um, yeah. Do you? Uh, okay, I'm not going to ask favorites per se, mm-hmm. but um, but are there are are there sports that you work that that you get to apply your trade more than others? Yes, I would say so far um, cross country and football definitely. Just because my background is emergency medicine, that's what I did my residency in before I did a sports medicine fellowship. And with those sports, there have been a lot more kind of acute injuries, acute illnesses, management, um, which I love. It's just like being in the trauma bay, resuscitation right. bays in the ED, but with a lot less resources. Okay, you mentioned that. We we met on a flight to Louisville Yes. for uh, for the, the NCAA Women's Volleyball Championship Tournament. 
And I had asked a little bit about that. As a matter of fact, that's when I was like, oh, you, you know, you'd be great for the podcast. But you said back then that you mentioned cross country. And in the time since, I've forgotten that. I'm going to tell you right now, if if I were to think of any sport that's like, oh, yeah, that's like the trauma bay, cross country would not be it. So what, what kind of what kind of things do you where are the parallels there? What am I not getting? <laughs> yeah, a lot of people actually say that. They're like, oh, you know, are the runners, you know, stepping in holes and twisting their ankles, which is not <laughs> the case at all. They're fantastic athletes. Right. And it's it's almost non-musculoskeletal injuries. But it's, you know, acute heat, uh, heat stroke, heat illness, oh, yeah. acute asthma exacerbations, dehydration, those sort of things where you're really using kind of your emergency medicine background and kind of it's more of a medical resuscitation. Okay. Um, and... On average, so so the cross country events. Actually, this is it's a little bit embarrassing. Um, I get very much not only in academia, you know, mm-hmm. when 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 we're researching, get to this point, we tend to kind of get into a groove and uh, have a blind spot that that covers pretty much everything else in the world. But with athletics as well, I have to admit, I get so focused on volleyball that I lose sight of a lot of other things. So we need to lay a little bit of a, you know groundwork. Cross-country events, um, is it all the same distance? And for anybody that's listening in that, that is a cross-country runner or a former cross-country runner, please um, save the hate mail. I'm sorry, this is a, a, you know, a learning moment for me. Um, actually, that's a good question because they're different. Um, okay. So I covered the pre-national meet in Tallahassee and then also the national, the NCAA national cross-country meet in Tallahassee. And for the nationals meet, it's a longer distance than the pre-nationals, which can, you know, if runners aren't you know training for that longer distance they're already pushing themselves to the max Mm -hmm. to run their usual distance and now you're adding i think it's two more kilometers about approximately okay um so that can really so what what are the distances specifically it's only two kilometer difference i want us i so don't quote me on this (laughs) put you in the same spot (laughs) that i was just in yeah um because it was a while ago but i want to say that for men it's about 8k and then nationals it's 10k okay something something kind of like that but yeah, when you're but... kind of, you know, already pushing yourself over the limit um, on race day and then you got to go longer just for the nationals meet, um, that yeah. was really exciting. So I, I've played I've played volleyball. I was a martial artist, uh, played hockey. I'm not a runner. I don't do endurance stuff at all. Um, and so the, the concept of, I guess, knowing yourself as an athlete to to establish a pace for that duration of time and that distance is totally foreign to me. But I would imagine that that kind of repetitive movement and that continued cardiovascular stress and cardiorespiratory stress and, you know, especially, you know, in in this part of the country, that's where a lot of those things that you're talking about with heat stroke and all that come in is that they're they're finding a pace that they can, the fastest pace that they can maintain, I I would guess, for that distance. And that seems to be a lot of physiological stress. Yes. And I mean, all of all of these athletes who I saw were elite athletes in their sport. Clearly, I'm also, you know, not an elite runner either. So (laughs) all these people are, you know, amazing. But even just taking, say, a nationals meet and you're taking people from different parts of the country. Mm -hmm. So some teams, you know, train at a higher altitude. So they're great. But then you come in the Florida heat and the humidity, it's a whole different ball game. Yeah, it's like breathing underwater. Right? Yes. Yeah. So I think there's kind of, you know, pros and cons to where you train, definitely. So when you're um, just let's stick with with cross country for just a moment, since it's yeah. so foreign to me, at least I'm hoping that it'll be interesting to somebody else as well. 
when when you have to treat these things, since we are a pain podcast, I do want to circle back to this from you know from time to time. What are some of the the signs and symptoms that you see, and and are any of them pain related? Do um, you know when these runners are uh, are experiencing heat stroke or, or any kind of you know climate or environmental effects? You know, is it is it painful? Are they in pain? Do you use that to gauge the severity of of their condition? Or? Um, so I would say that going back to my emergency medicine background, if somebody is able to tell me I'm in pain or speak to me in full sentences, that's a positive sign already. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> so for somebody, you know, having severe heat illness or even a heat stroke where they could be completely unresponsive or, you know, not able to talk to you or completely altered, um, that's, you know, if they're able to tell me something hurts, then that's a good sign. That's a good sign. Yeah. yeah. That at least tells you where along the spectrum they're not. Yes. Right? Okay. Yeah. All right. Um, all right. So in addition to, to cross country, mm-hmm. um, football. Yes. I, f- I feel like that's got to keep you busy. That was a huge part of my <laughs> fall during fellowship, but I loved every single moment of it. And we covered the practices as well. So my co-fellow and I would split up practices, but then we would both cover all the games mm-hmm. so that, you know, you really get to develop a relationship with that team more th- so than other sports, which I really liked. That's cool. And I mean, that's a lot of, hum- well, just real quick recap. How many people on, say, men's and women's cross country, how many people are we talking about for the so, rosters? Well, for the meets that I covered, because they weren't, you know, the full team. It's not the full team. Um, so they were, you know, about thirty-five teams uh-huh. for women. Oh, and so you're and not 35. just you're not just working with with the Florida teams. You're working it's for everybody. With for everybody. I see. Yeah, so it's kind of covering, you know, a couple hundred runners. Okay, so that's about yeah. the same as working with the football team. Then that's what yes. I was getting yeah, at. Yes. This is <laughs> sheer numbers wise. Yes. It's a lot of people to <laughs> to establish rapport with and all that. So I guess that that makes sense why the the team specific athletic trainers you know, have a, a little bit more yes. comprehensive knowledge of, of the athletes that they're working with. And yeah, and we really do rely on them, especially in, you know, emergencies or, or acute situations. You want that person who knows, you know, okay, what's going on, what medical problems do they have, just to kind of rattle it off. Uh-huh, uh-huh. That's, all right, well, okay. So with, and, and I should put out a disclaimer, um, you know, I have, I'm pretty aware that the, you know, athletes' privacy is, is a major um, priority for, not just for University of Florida, but, you know, pretty much anywhere. Then, of course, you have HIPAA, mm-hmm. you know, as a physician, that, that, you know, all that protected health information. So, you know, I may ask questions over the course of this conversation. Um, you know, I'm not trying to get the juicy details on, you know, who's, you know, who's on the injury reserve or anything like that. But, but I think that y- you probably have an insight into some of the, the behind the scenes stuff that, not only that you have to do, but that are indications of, of how far along science and medicine have come and in the application of, of keeping these really high-functioning humans at that high-functioning level. So if I do ask anything that you have to tap dance around, mm-hmm. it's okay to just you know, blatantly say, well, I better not answer that. That's totally fine to say. Now, having said that, yes. <laughs> <laughs> when it comes to football... Um, do you do you have to do a lot of work? Um, you know, we, we see most people don't go to football practices. Um, you know, for Division One football, so we see what competition looks like. But in practice, do you get a fair amount of work in practice as well when you're working with the team? I mean, are there? And if so, like, what's the range of things that you might have to deal with there? So our role pretty much during practice is we're on the sidelines. So for any kind of sideline emergency, such as similar to a football game. Mm-hmm. Um, and then after practice, who we can see any type of complaint in the training room. 
Um, so more of a routine complaint or, you know, something happened during practice or, you know, is this an illness going on? So that's kind of a wide range in the training room. Mm-hmm. But on the sidelines, it's more of the acute injuries. So you do. And, and for the training room, you know, that's, that's where the athletic trainers are. It's where they can receive, mm-hmm. you know, rehabilitative treatment, et cetera. Do you spend a fair amount of time in there with the with the athletic trainers or is it more interfacing and you work with acute stuff and then they move on and, and kind of do the longitudinal work? or So the training room is set up where there is a, an exam room, a physician's exam room. Um, it looks similar to a clinic room, and that's pretty much where we'll hang out. And then anybody, you know, it's kind of an open door policy. Whoever wants to be seen can, you know, is more than welcome to come see us. And the trainers already have an insight of, you know, who needs to be seen and things like that. So it's separate enough that the trainers can still do their treatments and things like that. What about other sports that are that are non-contact sports like gymnastics or whatnot? Uh, whenever I watch gymnastics, it always seems like, wow, like these, you know, uh, particularly, you know, women's gymnastics, because that's the team that we have here. But mm-hmm. But whenever I watch women's gymnastics, you know, first of all, like my knees and back and shoulders ache just watching. I'm thinking, wow, that really looks like they're beating themselves up. Do you work? Have you spent some time working with them as well? Yes. Yeah, I have covered a gymnastics meet. And they are, yeah, again, amazing athletes just to watch. They're so fun to watch. They're great. How much would you say um, they're practicing? And and again, this is a broad question, um, Mm -hmm. but but how how often do you say that, that sports like that that are even the contact sports? How often do you feel that, that the athletes are working either through training or playing with some degree of, of pain, even if it's just soreness? Is that something that athletes kind of regularly have to deal with at that level? or is? You know, I would say that, the you know, being an SEC school, these are all elite athletes. So kind of working through, you know, from training camps and soreness, they're really put an emphasis on, you know, good hydration, good nutrition, good treatments afterwards. Do they need, you know massages, ice baths, all those things to kind of get them through the next practice. So it's pretty well thought out through, you know, the whole medical and training staff and athletic staff. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of people that go into it um, because if you, you know, want to perform at 100% every single day and every single practice, you need to kind of be taking care of that recovery too. Yeah, I was just going to say, yeah. it seems like the recovery is just as important, it's if not huge. more so than, than the training itself. Yeah. Do you think that's kind of what separates some of the, uh, the, the more elite schools with, uh, you know, from the rest is, is that, that the resources that can be devoted to that, but then also the focus and and the ability to, to work the athletes through recovery. I think that's definitely part of it. And I think, um, even, you know, people just looking at, you know, fans looking at, you know, SEC sports and things like that, they can see kind of the resources that are dedicated to all these different pieces and, you know, the dietitians and and nutrition and all these small things really add up and can make a difference. Yeah. Um, yeah. There, there's a lot of, of research in more in my interest um, in aging research, but with you know some dietary effects of chronic inflammation and how that chronic inflammation can can set a threshold for for any types of acute or acute on chronic pain that, that might come about later. But you're you know if, if you think of it as a dial where ten is you know excruciating pain and zero is no pain, with a lot of people based on their diet, it seems like that that they're kind of set at maybe a three or a four already or a two or a three at least just because of the inflammation that some of the things that they're eating. So, you know, that's, I think that's something that a lot of people don't realize with, with elite collegiate level athletes, even how, I don't want to say tightly controlled, but how much um, monitoring goes on in, in, you know, advising diet and, and, you know, trying to keep the athletes in, in that type of, of game ready condition. 
I think that is one of the new newer topics that are coming about that people are realizing how big of a role nutrition and, and diet can play, even just in the everyday person, like you said, with pain and kind of that sort of response. I think in the next 20 years, we're going to learn a lot more. Yeah. Um, one of one of my colleagues is, is actually looking at relationships between body composition and pain and looking at a number of factors. But one of the conversations that I'm eager to have with her is, you know, we know to an extent that, that body fat can be pro-inflammatory. So the more body fat you have, the more likely you're to be in a chronic inflammatory state. And so, you know, I, I'd be interested to see how, how athletes can be continually fueled and, and have the necessary levels of fat. Because, you know, not all fat's bad, of course. You know, it's, mm-hmm. it's a necessary, uh, not only dietary substrate, but a necessary tissue in the body. But, but to, to find that sweet spot... I'm, I'll be interested to see how how much diet and, and those effects of diet on younger, healthier, or even elite performing populations mm-hmm. will influence and inform what we do for healthy aging. Because that, like I said, that's a, more of an interest of mine as well. Yeah, I think definitely having that emphasis on preventative health care, you know, preventative healthy aging, as you call it. I think that'll be a huge difference. So let's talk a little bit about you um, okay. now that we're into this. Um, you mentioned just a moment ago that your background and your training is in emergency medicine. Yes. But right now, you're how far into your fellowship are you? I'm about halfway through my fellowship. It's a one-year fellowship. Okay, one-year sports medicine yes. fellowship. And uh, we can talk about that transition in a minute, but you're a physician. And yes. that's not something that everybody has experience with. And, and, you know, unless they're sick, they go see one. So how did you how did you get to where you are? Is it something that you did, Have you always wanted to be a doctor? Yes, I grew up. Um, my father was an orthopedic surgeon and we lived in a small town in Wisconsin. And I just saw what an impact he had with the community and even going through the grocery stores. And, you know, he knew everybody. Patients would come up to him and. You know, I saw what a difference he made in that community, and he was really kind of my role model. So I was one of those people who knew from, you know, elementary school that they wanted to be a physician. Yeah, well, and I don't know if, if I've discussed this with any other guests, but but I've had, you know, I've had to have work done by an orthopedic surgeon. Yeah. And, and the joke is kind of that they're, you know, maybe, uh, you know, three parts carpenter, one part surgeon or one part physician kind of thing. But that also really depends on what populations, what patient populations you're working with. And so with him, were you in a smaller town or a larger town? Did he get to work with, with you know, sports-related injuries and reverse shoulder replacements for, you know, for old ladies or whatever the case may be? So, yes, he was a general orthopedic surgeon. Um, so he was, you know, one of a few in our small town. So he really took care of, you know, a wide range of ages, a wide range of conditions. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. Um, all right. So... Your dad was a doctor. What did your mom do, just out of curiosity? Um, so she was a teacher, okay. and then she was a stay-at-home mom, so she, she raised us. Oh, and, nice. Yeah. Nice. All right. So right from the get-go, you saw his influence. You wanted to be a doctor. Mm-hmm. Um, where did you go to school? Um, I went to undergrad at Valparaiso University in okay. Indiana, and then I went to medical school in med- at the Medical College of Wisconsin. Medical College of Wisconsin. Mm-hmm. And how did you end up all the way down here for this fellowship? 
So I, you know, I loved growing up in the Midwest. I think it's, you know, a great culture, a great group of people. They have great values, but I wanted to experience something different um, and wanted to get outside of the Midwest. So I matched to Virginia Tech Carilion for emergency medicine residency and then really fell in love with kind of, you know, the sports medicine side of emergency medicine Mm -hmm. and, you know, found that the University of Florida had a really great program for emergency medicine trained physicians. Okay. Yeah. I don't know if I would, if I... It makes sense, uh, you know, if, if you're thinking about with sports medicine, particularly if you're hands-on in practicing competitions, that, that it's acute response, uh, or at least a, a portion of it is. And I'd like to talk about that in a minute. But I guess looking back and deconstructing it, it makes sense that transition from emergency medicine, uh, trauma, stuff like that, to, to sports medicine. But I don't know if a lot of people would make that connection. Um, is that something that you specifically wanted to do? Did you have that in mind early on? So I always had an interest in sports medicine. I grew up playing volleyball. I played collegiate volleyball at Valparaiso. Um, so that patient population was always a passion of mine. And finding out you know, that I could be a sports physician from emergency medicine and really combine those things um, was really something great because something that you know, people might not realize is you still have to go through residency. So you still have to love what you're doing for a few years. Mm -hmm. And I still love emergency medicine. I still want to practice emergency medicine, but it's, it would be really hard for me to do another specialty just to get to sports medicine. Yeah. How, how long is the residency for emergency medicine? Um, so my program was three years. Most of them are three years. A few of them are four in the country. Okay. So three and then an additional year to to kind of focus even further Mm -hmm. and apply that to sports medicine. You're doing both at the same time now? You're practicing in emergency medicine while doing this fellowship? Yes. It's part of the um, it's ACGME, which is just basically the governing body of residencies and fellowships. Mm-hmm. They require that you still practice one day a week in your primary specialty. Ah. Um, so my co-fellow trained in family medicine, so he does a family medicine clinic one day a week. And then I do one emergency department shift one day a week. Okay. Um, is it tough to juggle that with all of the? I mean, how many how many sports do you work at one at one time? I mean, there are times throughout the year where there are obviously multiple sports going on. Do you do you have multiple sports throughout the year and you're just working on one at a time, or do they overlap? So the kind of the purpose of the fellowship is really to give us exposure to all of the sports. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're covering all of the games, and then we do training rooms that involve all of the sports, and then. During the day, we're doing sports clinics, and we can see, you know, athletes or people in the community, your weekend warriors, kind of a, a broad range mm-hmm. of things. But it's really nice um, to kind of be able to see, you know, athletes all year round. And, you know, people might not be familiar that just because your season ends, you know, if you're a fall sport and your season ends in November, you're still working out, training, right. practicing <laughs> all year long. So things come up. So you're all sports all the time. Yeah. Plus that one weekly shift in the ED. Yes. How long is the shift in the ED? Um, here it's eight hours. Oh, that's oh, cakewalk, right? Just eight hours of crazy in it's, the ED. Yes, <laughs> it's great. I'm always revved up. Yeah. So, what's that like? Um, walk us through a, a, a typical shift. I get to hear this all the time because my girlfriend is is now recently out of her residency in internal medicine and and working as a hospitalist. So I get to hear about you know all the trials and tribulations and highs and lows of of her shifts. But she's not an emergency physician, and that's that's different. It's a different pace. It's it's a different environment. Tell me a little bit about, you know, when you walk in the door to the time you, you know, you're checking out and leaving. Yeah, I think one of the things that I really loved about emergency medicine that drew me to it is it, your day is never the same. Every shift you go into, you don't know who's going to walk through the door, what's going to happen. You know, there's some shifts that I walk in and I get a page and, you know, 
there's a cardiac arrest coming in and you have two minutes and you oh, just wow. like go to the resuscitation bay and you get your stuff together and you just go and that rush of, you know, just everybody working together and those critically ill patients is like really something special that I like. But COVID, of course, has kind of changed the mix of it. But mm-hmm. pre-COVID, it was a, a big, it was a big diverse so, patient population. So m- most days on those shifts, is it just one right after the other with patients? Yes, um, especially working at a large academic level one trauma center. Um, you know, we have a lot of transfers come in because some hospitals don't have a very specialty. So you're managing, you know, transfer patients as well as the surrounding community, which oh. I definitely can feel for the, you know, lone emergency physician out there. And you need, a, you know, a super specialized person that's three hours away. Right. I definitely, my heart goes out to them. Just hearing that stresses me out because it seems like the exact opposite of what I get to do. If if I'm interested in writing a paper looking at the effects of X on Y and I haven't done anything with that, you know, say in the past three years, it was part of my training, but maybe I haven't done anything recently. I can take all the time I need to yeah. look at the current literature, look at maybe recent discoveries to, you know, get a refresher. It sounds like with you, you get a two minute heads up, somebody's coming in and, um, you know, the, the stuff has hit the fan with that individual. And it's not like you have time, you know, to break out your, your Gray's Anatomy or whatever and look through and, and this is what I need to do. And these are the diagnostic criteria and blah, blah, blah. You have to have all of that pretty much ready all the time. Yeah, I think um, another thing to kind of emphasize with emergency medicine is that, you know, the training is really for resuscitation to manage those acute situations mm-hmm. and the resuscitation and, you know, ruling out life-threatening conditions. So a lot of things, even, you know, chronic pain, such as, you know, chronic abdominal pain or things like that, you know, part of our training is to make sure that you don't have a life-threatening thing. You don't have a bowel perforation. You don't have something that you are going to go into septic shock over in the next, you know, day or two. Right. Um, but once we rule all those things out, then we can kind of sit down back at the drawing board and think about, okay, what is causing these symptoms or who can I, what specialist can I get you to that can help figure that out. Once you get them stabilized and yes. sorted out. Yeah. Throughout that process, though, it seems like, I mean, uh, just on an on a extremely layman's perspective, one of the normal doctor questions is, where does it hurt? Right? <laughs> so yes. it, um, to, to bring this back a little bit to pain, even if it's more acute pain, and we can maybe progress in looking at how to differentiate between symptoms that are a result of something that's been ongoing in chronic pain and acute pain that's because of whatever brought them to the ED. Um, how big of a role does that play and how do you go through that? And does that happen first or do you do you have to deal with other vitals? Or I think that that's a huge part, especially in the emergency department. Um, my old program director in training, that was, you know, one of his questions that he would always ask everybody, especially people with chronic pain. He would say, you know, this has been going on for months, but what specifically brought you in today? What was different about today? Mm-hmm. And most people will say, well, there actually was an acute change or there was something different. You know, occasionally you'll get somebody that, you know, well, this is the most convenient for me and we're always happy to see those people as well. Right, but right. yeah, if really drilling down, okay, this has been going on, but what brought you in today? Do you get a lot of, of, of people who, you know, because you said two, two very different things within that comment, those who you know, have a, a change to their pain. So maybe something that's existing and it say, okay, well, you know, my belly hurts over on this side. Mm-hmm. And it kind of always does, but now it hurts more. 
well, that's one thing, but what about, well, you know, my belly usually hurts on this side, but now it really hurts over here. Do you get both of those things? And what are, you know, walk us through some of the, the scenarios that that you have to, I'm sorry to do this, but I'm a huge fan. You kind of have to go through, you know, a, a differential diagnosis and, and play Dr. House a little bit, um, not play it because you do it for real, but you get what I'm saying, and and work through some of those things. What are some of the challenges to that? Yeah, I think, you know, like you had mentioned, you know, some people say, oh, I have always, you know, pain on this side, but now it hurts over here. And, you know, it's very common for people to to kind of try to connect things temporally or, you mm-hmm. know, in a, in a timely manner or, you know, oh, I ate this for lunch and now, you know, five hours later, my like my abdomen hurts or something like mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. But all of those pieces might not be related. You know, it's like true, true, but unrelated. <laughs> it's like all of the research. You, this is some some psych 101 stuff. And I, if I butcher this, it was a long time ago for me. But um, some of some of the work, if I if I'm remembering this correctly, some of the work that led to to the research in in superstition and in you know ritual and stuff like that comes from observations of pigeons and uh, pigeons that were. I don't know if the if I can't recall if the studies. Again, I, I know I'm going to get comments about this from from our audience, but but I want to say that the pigeons were being used to study reinforcement. Um, you know, can can you teach a pigeon to click a button and get some food as a result of clicking that button? But there are different schedules of reinforcement. You can have it to where every time the pigeon clicks the button, they get food. Well, that's good, but if you're used to clicking the button and food comes out every time and maybe you click the button two or three times in a row, you're going to give up if no food comes out. So that doesn't really condition them to click the button so well. So you can randomize it to where sometimes the food comes out, sometimes it doesn't. Well, if I'm remembering correctly with with these studies, they, they would come in and observe these pigeons in really weird positions. Some would have their wing out to the side or standing on one foot or, you know, in a, in a weird posture, or you're making a weird sound or in a weird part of the cage, whatever the case may be, because they were making that that temporal connection that you're talking about. Well, this is what I did the last time I got food. So this must be what caused the food to come out. And they're totally wrong. <laughs> so, and, and hence, you know, sorry to ruin this for all the athletes listening, but, you know, like your, uh, you know, your lucky socks. So these are the socks that I was wearing when I won the state championship or whatever, you know, like or pitched the last no hitter. Um, so <laughs> in this age where people have that to deal with and they want to, you know, and I'm sure they're just trying to be helpful. Hey, yeah, I did absolutely. this and this is what led to it. But then you also have WebMD, right? And so how, how much does that muddy the water diagnostically, not just with pain, but with anything for your job of, of people trying to connect the dots and make it easier for you, but really, you know, maybe throwing out red herrings and, and whatnot. Yeah, I think definitely in, you know, the time of the Internet and all of these things where people can look things up, I can definitely sympathize with them, especially, you know, you don't have a medical background and you you think you have you have these symptoms and then something crazy comes in. And then, you know, that's kind of a great opportunity for patient education for us to go, okay you know, your entire labs, your imaging, everything was normal. And this is why I don't think it's this Mm. and this, you know, and kind of differentiating that. But then kind of talking about. Another aspect of pain, you know, I think, you know, any elderly person with chest pain, I mean, that's terrifying in itself. And then, you know, you get the 90 year old that is like, well, I don't I don't think it was a big deal. And they come in and it's, 
you know, they're having a huge MI <laughs> or, you know, a heart attack. I shouldn't laugh about that, but yeah. yeah but yeah, 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 and you're like, oh, why didn't you come in like a day sooner? And they're right. like, well, I always get chest pain. Yeah, I always so. get gassy after I eat salads, yes, you know? <laughs> yeah, so there's definitely, yeah, challenges to that. Yeah. Um, all right, so you you went through your emergency residency. You transitioned into the current fellowship. What parts of what you're doing now with the Sports Medicine Fellowship make you think, yep, I made the right choice in this one. I'm, this, is, this is what I'm doing. We'll talk about what comes next later. But just to, just to reaffirm what you're doing now, what do you, what do you like most about, about your interactions in, in your job? I really love combining emergency medicine with sports medicine. So anytime I get to use those acute emergency skills, that really makes the training feel like it was worth it in that journey and those long hours. So that's really exciting. Saving lives in the ED is not enough to reaffirm <laughs> that. You have to bring it into sports too, right? Yeah, it's really fun to, to combine the two. Um, but I would say, you know, the sports medicine population, getting back to, you know, why I am so passionate about them is because there's they're a very motivated population of people mm -hmm. and they'll say you know i will happily try all of these different things if it can, if it can get me back to my hobby my sport my activity or even just daily activities um, and just kind of seeing them progress and then something that i really like in sports medicine clinic is seeing these patients back week after week which not only like not all the time happens in emergency mm -hmm. medicine and is this because they they require continuing care to get yes. that? Oh, okay yeah to see did that therapy or medication help and then when it does that's very rewarding to see okay do you that made me think of a little bit of a tangent my entire show is tangents, by the way. So if you notice, I don't have a script in front of me here. When you're working with athletes, and I would imagine this happens also in the ED, maybe, I don't know, I don't know how, much, how rushed you are and how much time you have in, in, in that. So I don't want to, maybe I don't want to assume. But when you're working with athletes, at least, do you ever find that they're a little bit deceptive about how much pain they're in or symptoms they're feeling because they want to get back to competing or, or are they pretty upfront with you? I think, um, you know, there's, there's always that, you know, you want to really relate to the patient and see, you know, how much pain are you having or, you know, and things like that. But I think your physical exam skills and, and your history can really guide you in, in imaging as well, making sure that they can return to sport as safely as possible. And, and so some of those things are, are what you're saying were carryovers from, from your emergency training. Are there specific skills that, you know, you said you like to apply that to sports. Are there specific specific things that you can that you can uh, or do regularly draw upon that, that you can detail for us now like what 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 exactly from your acute care and emergency translates over to sports you know i think one of the biggest things is ultrasound in the emergency oh. department we use ultrasound for a whole variety of complaints between you know heart lungs abdomen musculoskeletal and then sports you know we have a huge emphasis on musculoskeletal but then bringing in that emergency background you know if somebody gets hit in their abdomen or has chest pain you know i can put the ultrasound probe on and see you know how's their heart functioning now you know is their abdomen looking okay mm -hmm. and just kind of blending those two things that's really cool yeah, I, yeah. I i wanted to um very badly either I found out some people who actually were able to stay awake for their procedure, I guess they did some kind of like spinal nerve block or something, but I at least wanted pictures or video of the inside of my knee when they were reconstructing my quad tendon. And uh, 
I was denied that. I, they're like, yeah, we don't do that here. <laughs> so, um, but that that always fascinates me the the ability and the importance um, to to not have to look at indirect relationships between signs and symptoms you can see externally and what's going on on the inside. So ultrasound, you know, allows you to look inside a person, but you can't see pain, right? Like you can't you can't use an ultrasound to see pain. Right. You might be able to see something that that could likely be related to the pain they're reporting. So it kind of sounds like it becomes a, a bit of a you know puzzle where you're putting those pieces together to get the whole picture. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and pain, yeah, is, you know, I think one of the things in sports medicine is to see, okay, what is the root cause of their pain? Because if it's something traumatic, you know, and we're on the sidelines, we can obviously see that and there's a direct correlation. But, you know, somebody that comes into clinic and they're having, you know, foot pain, ankle pain, things like that, you know, and it's, there is no trauma, you know, is it that they're, you know, there's something wrong with their arch or how they're running and they need to do a gait analysis or things like that with physical therapy, they can kind of really drill down and do more of a sports performance analysis to see, okay, what's the root cause of your pain while we're treating your pain at the same time, Mm -hmm. but how can we fix it so it doesn't get to a worse problem where it's not persistent? Right. Just, you know, treating the pain itself doesn't necessarily mean that that that's going to solve the problem long term. Can you, maybe this is Hollywood. Again, I'm showing my ignorance of this, but can you alleviate pain to get a better idea of the cause of pain? Like if, if I, you know, it's kind of, I think back to, uh, you know, cadaver anatomy when I took clinical anatomy, there's a a lot of musculature in the forearm, right? Mm -hmm. There's multiple layers and all that. And, and some of those muscles, matter of fact, most of them manipulate the hand. And so if you're ever unsure, and sorry if I'm grossing anybody out that, that's listening or watching along, but if you're ever unsure, man, is, is this the, is this the, you know, palmaris longus? Well, you're not really sure. Well, you know what you do? You, you, you tug on it and see what, what the cadaver's hand does as far as an action, you know, to, in response to that muscle shortening. In the same way, can you, when you're treating someone, say, okay, well, we think the pain might be indicative of this trauma. So if we would do whatever, not centrally, you know, not with something that's this systemic, you know, like a, a an NSAID, or obviously you probably don't use those in acute sense, but, you know, something like that. Can you specifically treat the pain to get a clearer image of what might be causing the pain? Or is that a little bit too Hollywood? So I think in terms of like a clinic visit or in the acute setting, if we're able to reproduce the pain and not necessarily mask the pain, that is more helpful. Uh. And even, you know, if somebody is hurting all over, whether it be in the emergency department or in the sports clinic, if you can, you know, push on somebody's knee in that spot or, you know, kind of do a physical exam scale and say, is that the pain that you're experiencing that brought you in today? Is that the thing? That is more helpful to us. Uh, do you get do you get a lot of cases where, you know, maybe somebody has multi-site or widespread pain, but then there's also something that that is is an acute pain-related trauma? Um, and the reason why I ask this is, there's a fair amount of, of research that, uh, that, again, some of my mentors and colleagues that are, are working on in, in multi-site pain or widespread pain. But one thing that we see is if we circle back to, and this could apply to younger populations as well, but with older populations, people who have chronic pain, particularly long-term chronic pain, they can and often do develop alterations in their pain sensitivity. That, that central nervous system built-in effect to modulate pain gets out of whack. And so other things will hurt more 
um, or or things that wouldn't normally hurt. You know, you get like hyperalgesia, right? Something that wouldn't normally hurt all of a sudden does. That seems like that could really make figuring some of those things out difficult. Do you see that very often with younger people or, or in the ED in general? You know, I think what we see more commonly is, you know, somebody comes in and they will say have chronic right knee pain. Mm. So then they adjust how they're doing activities or how they're walking. And now suddenly some part of their left, My left leg hip hurts. hurts. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> right. So we're seeing kind of those compensatory mechanisms. Mm-hmm. And I think in fellowship, what we're really learning is, you know, all of the biokinetic chains and how everything is really so intertwined and so interconnected. And if one thing is off, that can cause kind of, you know, this um, trickle down effect and have a lot of things. Yeah. Yeah. That's fascinating to me. Um, Just with my background in sports and in coaching and, Mm. and some of the things that I have to do uh, in training or used to have to do in training to help, you know, strengthen and improve, you know, joint balance and, and, and do the things that that make athletes more bulletproof to resistance or to uh, injury rather make them more injury resistant learning some of those connections um it's almost like you know making a a trick shot in pool right if you're making a combo well you're shooting a ball straight in that's you know you can figure out some angles and stuff but if there are two then a small change in how you hit the first ball can have a huge effect on where the second ball goes and that's why you don't shoot it like you know make three ball combinations and stuff because very small changes in that chain and go figure that's kinetics also, but but that can result in really huge differences and have sometimes opposite effects. And you mentioned, oh, well, my, my right leg hurts, mm-hmm. and so I've been limping or favoring it or, or changing my, my movements, and now all of a sudden I'm having low back pain on my left side or yes. something like that. Does that happen a lot? Yeah, it, it does, and that really kind of plays a role into how big physical therapy is too because even a lot of these chronic um, injuries or chronic pain that somebody comes in for initially, the physical therapist can kind of go through and say, okay, well, we need to strengthen up this muscle group. So then it not only fixes the primary problem, but now it also fixes all the other downstream right. effects. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So it is over time. Well, and I guess that's regardless of what age or condition or reason you see the doctor, that sounds like a really good reason to see the doctor sooner than later, right? Because if if you don't go, then you can get all of these these compound effects that come from the original injury that you didn't look into and get fixed. And then I would assume that, that treatment recovery takes even longer. Yeah, definitely. And even that plays a role in the whole sports performance world where, you know, cyclists will come in and do a bike fitting. And because, you know, they're having some knee pain, but that cartilage on their kneecap is constantly rubbing if they're, you know, a professional cyclist or something like that. And, you know, how can we adjust the seat so that cartilage isn't hitting in that spot anymore? Mm-hmm. Otherwise, if you keep doing it, it's only going to get worse. Right, right. Mm-hmm. Do, you, do you find that, and I guess this comes back because you gave two starkly different examples when you talked about where you you have to put in the most time with sports. Mm-hmm. One seems to be very acute type injuries where, where very large guys are crashing into each other pretty regularly on purpose. Then the other side, um, and not to say that there aren't large cross-country athletes, but those people are built very differently than football players, most football players. But the difference there is the repetitive type thing. And, and speaking musculoskeletal-wise, I know that you said a lot of the, the things that you treat uh, are, are more um, – you know, environmental stress and, and, uh, and, and heat stroke and stuff like that. But 
what what do you see more of from a musculoskeletal standpoint? Do you see overuse type injury or or um, what what do you get exposed to the most? Not in the ED, but with you know from the sports medicine side. Yeah, I think definitely endurance athletes. Their host of injuries are more overuse, chronic, and you know those people. Even you know marathon runners. You know how can we look at your gait and see? You know, are you a four foot runner? Are you a heel strike runner? Those you know, how can we adjust to not have as many overuse injuries? And the reason why I asked that is a little bit because we try to do with this podcast, we try to accomplish a few goals. And, and one is, is well, try to have fun and try to inform people and, and you know, people that are science nerds and whatnot. But also, uh, you know, a little bit of education. And the reason why I asked that question is more often than not, when it comes to chronic pain populations, We've already addressed the first thing. Something happens, you don't see a physician and address it, then it becomes even bigger problem than it should. But the other thing is the big difference, you know, you can have all of this force of a couple of people colliding or some, you know, 350-pound guy running into the side of your knee, and those things are bad. But with cross-country, you're getting something, that, or, or cycling, getting something that's very innocuous, uh, a light movement, uh, a running step. And it's, I don't want to say gentler, but it's it's just not as, as intense as the other thing. But you do it hundreds or thousands of tens or thousands of times. Much like walking or doing activities of daily living if you're older, going up and down stairs. And so how you, how you pay attention to and modify those movements seems to be really important in athletics. And would it be safe to say that it's probably the same for even... Just people in their everyday lives, how you sit at your desk, how you get into your car, you know, et cetera. Yeah, definitely. And I think what's different with elite athletes or even being on those athletic teams of endurance sports is you are going to have at least one coach, if not multiple coaches, helping kind of, you know, the training program and the cross training program. But if you are a person who wants to take up running as a hobby and you're by yourself and, you know, you go from zero running to now you're running 10 miles a day and that's all you're doing, that's where you see the injuries and really putting an emphasis on strength training to strengthen up those leg muscles. Mm -hmm. So you're not, you know, you're helping kind of alleviate the impact of the running. That's brilliant. That's brilliant. All right. So what comes next for you? We've gotten you up to where you are now and what you're doing now. You're halfway through this. So in another six months or so, fall, fall of this coming year. So that means you won't be around for another volleyball season? We'll see. I'm okay. still, yeah, still TBD on my plans for next year, but I'm hoping that I can combine emergency medicine and sports medicine. Okay. Would you, if, if you had, if you had your druthers, would you stay here in Gainesville to do that? Or would you like to try something new? I've loved my time in Gainesville. This is my first time living in Florida and can't complain about the weather. The people are great. <laughs> I think it also helps that it, it's so sunny here. People are just happy. <laughs> Maybe for, well, that might help people be happy. It, I'm I'm a Michigander, um, you know, and so I uh, I don't know. It's funny because you say you come down here and, you know, you, you dealt with plenty of cold and snow yes. and all that, Wisconsin. <laughs> um, I didn't have to live in it for as long up north, but um, – when we have too long a spell of hot, humid weather, that doesn't do well with me. Like, I, <laughs> the last few days here, it's been kind of cold and drizzly and whatnot. Not so much today. Today's really nice out. But, but uh, those, those days, you know, scattered in, uh, I, I like a little bit more. But, but I feel you. You like the weather and stuff like that and the people. What, um, if, 
if you do, well, obviously you're going to, to stay on and combine emergency medicine and, and sports medicine, but what's your ideal way to do that? Would you want to stay at a, a university and work with, with college teams, or would you like to be very specific and work with a single sport and a single professional team year-round? Or I think um, combining it, meaning still doing emergency department shifts oh. and then still doing sports medicine clinic days mm-hmm. within the community and then covering sideline sports um, in whatever capacity that may be, but just kind of having a mix of different things. And I think that's a common thread with people who go into emergency medicine as it is, is mm-hmm. nobody wants the same thing every day. Right. So, you know, by the end of it, everybody has, you know, 10 different jobs. So the stuff that stresses job. me out about having to switch with all yeah. these teams is actually what draws you to this job. Yeah. That's I good. Huh? That's how you know you're in the right spot, yeah. right? Um, with, with regard to, um, with regard to both emergency medicine and sports medicine, with all of what you do as a physician, what are some of the new and exciting, uh, whether it be techniques or, uh, you know, I, I assume that you have to remain pretty evidence-based in your job, right? So you, how often do you have to, to circle back and look at new literature and new research to refine your practices? Let's start with that. Does that... I would say it's definitely, it's constant. Um, you know, even through residency and fellowship, we're learning about all of the new and exciting things. But then even after my training, it's just, you know, there's always science, there's always research coming out. And that really drives practice changing, you know, the way that we practiced emergency medicine 10 years ago is totally different than today, which is exciting and yeah. is really driving, you know, improved patient care, improved outcomes. What are, okay, so is there something that, just first thing that comes to mind that's relatively recent that that when you learned this or implemented it or saw how effective it was, you went, oh, that's cool. I'm glad we figured that out. Is there anything new in, in that respect that you can think of? Um, I would say getting back to ultrasound, that the technology of starting to use ultrasound and to apply it, especially in the capacity that emergency medicine can. Mm-hmm. Um, you can take the same ultrasound and diagnose somebody with a retinal detachment in their eye and then go to the next room and see, you know, are they in heart failure? Are they having a heart attack? And then go to the next room and say, okay, what does your knee look like? And just that is so dynamic. Really and diverse Really tool. practice changing. Yeah. Uh, how, how much training does it take to get proficient with that? Because I would imagine with ultrasound, um, I have a little bit of experience here, but but there has to be not even looking at interpreting the images, but just settings. If you're looking at you know different depths of of structures within the body, mm-hmm. um, and, and maybe different densities of tissues, you have to set the machine differently in order to do that, right? And then you have to interpret the images that you're seeing. How much training does all that stuff take? So it's really become a fundamental core part of emergency medicine where we are starting to get trained from day one of intern year and you're using it every single day um, and you're having, you know, dedicated ultrasound sessions. So it's really been a fundamental part. That's cool. All right. So you want to stay doing what you're doing. You want to have a little bit of everything, which that's the best thing that college towns provide, of course. Like you can, if, if you want to have, I mean, my job, you know, I, I get to, I get to write, I get to do podcast mm-hmm. stuff. I get to broadcast for sports. Not a whole lot of places other than, I guess, maybe a big metropolitan city. But so if 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 and when you stay here and you apply this, is there is there something that you specifically want to work on and develop and get either either make more central to your job or just something you already do and get better at as you move on? 
I would say, you know, there's definitely a couple of different things that I want to develop through my practice and through my career. But something that I'm particularly passionate about is incorporating sports medicine and everything I've learned in fellowship, because in a sense, you know, it's a whole nother specialty that I've done this past year and bringing it back into emergency medicine and educating the residents. Because in my residency, I was one of the few residents who was excited about their orthopedic surgery rotation and doing all those procedures. So then even on my emergency department shifts, everything I learned, you know, this past week, I'll take into the shift and teach the intern. And I love kind of incorporating that education model. That's awesome. And then last question before I let you go. Is there anything, because we get we get to look across the table and, and you're a, a practicing physician, so you're on the clinical side of things. Mm-hmm. I'm on the research side of things. Whether it's applied physiology and kinesiology, which is kind of core to my training, not kind of, it is, um, or pain. Is there anything that you're really thinking, man, I hope they unlock this. I hope that that we figure this out soon because it would make my job a lot easier. Is there anything you can think of there? I know that's a, that's a, a put you on the spot, but. Yeah, oh, that's such a, such a good question. Um, man. Because that's some of the things that yeah. we look for, right? right we, yeah. we wanna know, you know, from, from the research side, because we have to be somewhat reactive, but also somewhat proactive in, in the questions that we ask. To, to design our studies and to, to direct our focus and our work to be most beneficial, at least in, for me, in a clinical setting. You know, I, I don't, I don't want to do something that, that I might be able to get published and somebody's going to go, oh, that's really cool. And then it's 15 or 20 years and somebody's digging through you know, papers that have never been cited, but maybe three or four times go, oh, yeah, that crow guy, he's found this. I wonder if, you know, I want something that, in five years' time, a physical therapist or a mm-hmm. gerontologist or a, a you know, sports medicine physician or even in, in emergency medicine, then go, yeah, yeah, okay, so all of the work that's being done here, I think we can apply this and do something that we weren't able to do before, either diagnostically or, or in treatment. Um, but we look for those things. We want to we try to find those, those gaps in knowledge and those, those areas where if we could just plug a piece or two in, it would really go a long way to make your job easier. Can you think of anything that it's like, you know, this is this is a repeated problem mm-hmm. and we have to do so much more just because we don't know how to come at it from this angle or I think from the emergency Did I talk long enough to let you think about it? <laughs> I think um, from the emergency medicine standpoint, um, with specifically like the opioid epidemic um, that we've seen and now, you know, I'll, in Virginia that was a huge problem and we had a large suboxone um clinic and, you know, putting patients from the emergency department, starting them on Suboxone to their treatment course, which I think was a great program. And catch, a lot. Ca- Sorry yes. to interrupt. Catch people up on Suboxone. So for anybody that's listening that's mm-hmm. not familiar. Um, so people who have had an addiction to specifically opioids, Suboxone is a medication that can help bridge that addiction so you're not going through withdrawals um, with withdrawal symptoms being, you know, very uncomfortable. And I, I mean, my heart goes out to those people when you see them in acute withdrawal because they do really feel like they're dying. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it helps kind of ease that while they are on their treatment pathway. But then what we see is, you know, somebody comes in who has had a history of opioid addiction who is now on Suboxone, and then they come in with a real pain problem, meaning they come in and they have acute appendicitis or they come in from a trauma and, 
you know, they're, they broke their leg or something. And you do want to treat their pain because their pain in that, in that moment is very real. Mm-hmm. But then finding different ways to do that. Um, so now, you know, and just different ways to do that. But it can be a struggle when you're trying to throw this multimodal pain management situation. And, you know, when opioids would be the typical, you know, severe pain control that we would use, mm-hmm. but we can no longer use them. I think that's kind of we've really good. dug ourselves in into a bit of a hole there with the opioid yes. use and whatnot. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for coming on and, and spending time. I, I was really uh, excited to talk to you. To, to diversify uh, our content a little bit more. And, and I know we didn't dive really deep into, you know, pain research or pain treatment specifically, but I thought this is a really good opportunity to, to learn a little bit more, even if that's just one piece of what you do, about emergency medicine and about sports medicine. And I think you've done a really good job of, of uh, painting that picture. So thank you. Thanks for having me. Thank you for joining this episode of The Price of Pain. Opinions expressed on this podcast are solely those of the host and guests and not representative of the University of Florida or parent institutions of our guests, unless specifically stated. You can find more information about Price on the World Wide Web at price.ctsi.ufl.edu. And keep up with our researchers on social media by searching Facebook for UF Price by following at UF underscore pain on Twitter and Price of Pain podcast, all one word on Instagram.